Let's pray. Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We ask you to give us strength, comfort, and encouragement as we study your word this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a king who had it all. So he was the commander of the world's most powerful army. And the borders of his nation were totally fortified and secure. He lived in a beautiful palace, surrounded by all the wealth and luxuries that you could imagine. On top of all that, everybody liked him. So this king, unlike a lot of kings, was tremendously popular with the common people, with the nobles. He was universally respected. This king really had a pretty good life. Separately, there was a different king who was greatly suffering. This king was old, and he was sick, and he was in constant pain. He was suspicious and paranoid, and for a reason. He constantly had to be looking over his shoulder for the next young traitor who was going to be conspiring to maybe kill him and overthrow him and, and take his throne. But worst of all, worst of all, he lay awake at night, unable to sleep, replaying the events of his past and being tormented by guilt. Life for this king was very, very difficult. So, two kings, two kind of different situations. Which king do you think was in a better place? Seems like an easy answer, but you know, the answer may surprise you. So, the first king was King David in the prime of his life. Maybe you remember this from your extensive Old Testament studies, that uh, unlike his predecessor, King Saul, David really was, by all accounts, a very good king. He was a great warrior, he was just, and he was fair. He was a man after God's own heart. Everybody did respect him. And in the prime of his life, at the height of his reign, King David really did appear to have it all. But like so many people who have it all, his success and his happiness almost became his undoing. As someone who was so universally respected, King David really didn't have any accountability for his actions. Right? He started to kind of think that he could do anything he wanted and get away with it. Maybe you remember some various examples of this from David's ministry, but the big one was the day that he committed adultery with his neighbor Bathsheba, and then had her husband assassinated so he could take her for his own. And what's most notable about this great sin of King David is not the sin itself, as bad as it was, but what's most notable is the way that he dealt with it. King David hid it. He covered it up. That's because as a successful king at the prime of his life, at the height of his career, his pride had reached a point where he simply could not bring himself to admit that he had done something wrong, to admit that he had messed up. And so, despite all that wealth and prosperity and comfort and happiness, David was actually in an extremely dangerous spiritual position. He was not repentant for his sins. Thankfully, God sent him the prophet named Nathan to talk to him and, and to lead him to repentance. But it was kind of ironic, wasn't it? At the prime of his life, at the height of his career, when everything was going so well, 
That was when King David found himself in deeper spiritual danger than he was ever in at any other point. And we kind of said this, if you were here in the sermon last week, we said the most happy and successful times of life can actually be spiritually the most dangerous times in life. Now, in case you're wondering about the other king, well, that was also King David. But that was King David at the end of his life. Uh, towards the time that he wrote our psalm for this morning, our sermon text, which is Psalm 38. At this particular time, David was old and sick and constantly in pain, so he wrote things like this. There's no health in my body. I'm feeble and utterly crushed. Even the light has gone from my eyes. On top of all that, he was surrounded by traitors and young people trying to overthrow him and take his throne. Maybe you remember the name Absalom? Does that name ring a bell? That was King David's son who tried to overthrow him and become king in his place. And Absalom was stopped and he was defeated and King David got his throne back. But at the end of David's life, it almost happened again. His son Adonijah was now conspiring against David, trying to kill him, trying to seize the throne away from its rightful heir, which was supposed to be the son named Solomon. And so as the plotting was going on around him, David wrote, Those who want to kill me set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they scheme and lie. But then worst of all, worst of all, old King David lay awake at night, tormented by guilt over his sins of the past, like committing adultery with his neighbor and having her husband killed. And as that guilt weighed on him, he wrote, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. So pay close attention now. What's notable about these problems that old King David is facing is not the problems themselves, bad though they are, but what's notable now is what David is doing with them. Now he is bringing them to God. He's no longer hiding them. He's no longer covering them up. He's crying out to God for help. And that is because over the years, King David has learned, no matter how big of a mess he gets himself into, God, his heavenly Father, will never forsake him. And so that's why he ends the psalm the way he does. Lord, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord my God. Lord, do not forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God, but come quickly to help me my God, my Savior. So at the end of David's life, he may have been physically weak, he may have been emotionally troubled, but spiritually, he was the strongest that he had ever been. Because over the years, he had learned, no matter how big of a mess he got himself into, God, his Heavenly Father, would never forsake him. What about you? Maybe you don't lay awake at night, constantly tormented by guilt from the past? I don't know. Maybe you do. But even if not, how do you respond when you do something, you knew you shouldn't have done it, you knew it was wrong, and you went ahead and did it anyway? How do you respond? How do you feel when you look back at something wrong you did? Or how do you feel when you've sinned and then you see the negative impacts for other people? You see how your sin is affecting others, and it can be traced back to you. You see yourself hurting people. Um, or how do you feel when your sin messes up your own life? 
right? Sins that you've done have messed up your own life a little bit. How do you respond to that? So here, here's my theory. I think our natural response is to do nothing as much as we can. So we try to keep our feelings all to ourselves, and we hope that nobody else notices what's going on and traces it back to us. And we put on, like, we feel like we have to put on this poker face, like everything is fine, and nobody can see the reality that is behind it. And that's how we act towards other people, because it's super important to us how other people feel about us. Other people have to think that we're good. That's super important. But we also want to think we're good. And so inwardly, what we do with our guilt is we try to justify it to ourselves, And we think, okay, so I haven't done anything that bad. Like, other people do way worse stuff. And, and other people do this kind of thing, too. It, it wasn't great, but, but I, I do good things. I do lots of good things. Like, overall, collectively, I'm a pretty good person. We have this internal conversation with ourselves. So what are we doing with our guilt that we feel? I think, in summary... We're just going around it, we're ignoring it, we're covering it up, we are shoving it down deep and hoping it doesn't come bubbling back out again. Mostly we're just waiting for life to improve so that we cannot think about it anymore. Now, let me ask you, is that a productive way to deal with guilt? Not really. Because first, we're not really dealing with it, we're just ignoring it. And then secondly, yeah, we might be able to fool other people. We might be able to even fool ourselves. But we can't fool God. Because God knows everything. Right? God knows every wrong thing that we've done. And God also knows that twisted sinful nature that lies at the bottom of our heart. Every one of our hearts. And God knows the ways that maybe even secretly we bring out that sinful nature and allow it to play and encourage it and feed it what it wants. God knows what is going on behind these innocent-looking poker faces that we show to other people. God knows all of it. And we're being foolish and naive if we think that he doesn't. So here is the question, then. God knows everything about us. God knows all the bad stuff about us. God knows all of it. So what is he going to do about it? Well, the beautiful news of the Bible is God has already done something about it. God sent his son into the world as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That means when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of our sin and all of our guilt and all the bad things that other people can see and all the bad things that other people can't see. And more than that, when Jesus died on the cross, it was for that sinful nature that we have. It was for that deep corruption inside of our heart that God can see. Jesus died for all of it. And he replaced it not only with his perfect life, but with his perfect nature. And he gives us, through faith in him, his perfect status, where God now looks at us and says, we are holy, guilt-free children of God. So, God effectively dealt with our sin 2,000 years ago on the cross. But now, God wants to just as effectively deal with our guilt in our time and in our life today. And that is why the Apostle John wrote in our second reading, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. For a similar picture, uh, the Apostle Peter was 
preaching a sermon to some Jewish leaders, and he said this. He encouraged them. Repent and turn to God so your sins may be wiped out and so times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So, yes, Jesus washed your sins away 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross. But now, in your life today, God doesn't want you to go through life being consumed by guilt. And God also doesn't want you to go through life just ignoring your guilt and burying it and not thinking about it, because that's not productive. God wants to actually deal with your guilt, with my guilt. And that's why God encourages us to bring our sins to him. He wants us to be real with him, about the mess and brokenness in our hearts so that he can be real with us about the forgiveness that he has already provided. So that he can assure us, like he did a few minutes ago, our sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So our guilt can be washed away and so times of refreshing can come to us from the Lord. So speaking of refreshing, um, it's real hot right now because it's summertime. I don't know if you've observed this. And maybe you've had this experience, as I have had, that you decide to do something in the hot summertime that, in retrospect, was maybe not the best idea. You're like, I'm going to mow the lawn. Today is the day. I'm going to go on this run, and it's an out and back. And I'm going to go all this way out. Now I have to come all the way back. Have you ever got in over your head on a hot, sunny day, and you start to really not feel good? You are feeling faint. You are feeling maybe dizzy, you're starting to think about maybe I have heat stroke, and at a time like this when your body is just feeling the heat, there is nothing that feels so good as a simple glass of water. You stop at Crog Street Market and someone has mercy on you and gives you a drink, or you finish your lawn and you sit down on the porch and get a glass of water. It's not fancy, it's not carbonated, it's not Gatorade, right? But when you are just so deeply suffering from heat and thirst. This is like the best thing in the world. This is what your body needs. So there are also times in our life when spiritually we have gone too far. Spiritually we have gotten in over our head and we are getting spiritually faint with thirst. And maybe you have felt this way at some point where your sin is pressing down on you. Your guilt is like siphoning your strength away. When that's happening, what sense does it make to cover it up and pretend you're not thirsty? That's just as foolish as mowing the lawn and getting dehydrated and pretending that you're not thirsty. God doesn't want us to do that. That doesn't make any sense. God wants us to come to him and drink deeply of what our soul needs. Drink deeply of his forgiveness. We sang that in our first song today. You remember the lyrics of that song? Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy. I should come to him. And that's the lesson King David learned over the course of his whole life. And you can see it in this particular psalm. While young, inexperienced King David was always trying to cover up his guilt and deal with it on his own, becoming exhausted, old, wise King David had learned to just turn it over to the Lord. Lord, do not forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Savior. And that's what God did. He guided David through his sickness. He guided David's kingdom into the hands of its rightful heir. And eventually he guided David all the way to his heavenly home. And that is exactly what God wants to do for us. 
So this is why we come to church. This is why we go to a Bible study. This is why we read our Bible or a devotion book at home. This is why we pray. It's not so we can pretend that we're perfect people who have no guilt and no sin and no problems. It's the opposite. It's so we can lay our sin and guilt and problems at the feet of the cross where they've been forgiven. And so we can drink deeply from that refreshing fountain of grace which never ends. We come to God guilty and burdened and we go away from God refreshed. This is exactly the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. And this is exactly the kind of relationship God wants to have with everyone. Once upon a time, there was a teenager who made some terrible decisions at a party. Consumed by guilt and fear over what she had done, she ran outside, she got into an Uber, she sped off into the night. And as she bumped down the road in the dark with her hoodie up, she texted her best friend on her phone, and here is what her text said. I messed up so bad tonight. Please don't tell my dad. If he ever finds out about this, he's going to kill me. A different time, a different teenager made some terrible decisions at a party. Consumed by guilt and fear over what she had done, she went into the side room of the party and began to frantically search for her phone. And when her friend came in and checked on her and asked her what she's doing, she said this, I messed up so bad tonight. I need to call my dad right away. She found her phone, she called her dad, he came and got her, and he took her home. So these two teenagers were in similar situations, but they clearly had very different relationships with their dads. I messed up, my dad is going to kill me. I messed up, I need to call my dad. Two very different relationships going on. So let me ask you this, what kind of a relationship does God want us to have with him? It's the second one. He wants us to call upon him in a day of trouble. He wants us to bring to him our guilt and our shame. He wants us to open up our empty, exhausted hearts so he can fill them with the refreshment of forgiveness. It's exactly what our soul needs more than anything else. And yet, so many people think that God is doing something else, that God is thinking a different way, that God is not here to satisfy this greatest need that we have. And I wonder, I think it's probably true, that this is the greatest misconception that people have about God. Because people in the world have all got things in common, right? We're all sinners. At points in life, we're all going to make some terrible decisions. But when we do, we instinctively react like that first teenager. Don't tell my dad. He's going to kill me. And so we think of every different way that we can to cover it up, and we put on our perfect innocent face so that other people think that everything is really good, and we try to do some good things to try to, like, soften the blow of it, but we have to shove our guilt deep down and kind of pretend that it's not there and pretend that we're good people, because if God could actually see the kind of people that we are, he would kill us, we think. But what people don't realize is God can see exactly the type of people that we are, and instead of killing us, he died for us. He already went to the cross and died for us. 
And a God who would do all of that for us. A God who would see every bit of our guilt and our shame and love us anyway. This is a God worth knowing. So, you know that God is like this. And I know that God is like this. It is our mission to help more people realize that God is like this. Because once again, everybody in the world is sinful. Everybody in the world has guilt to deal with. And all over the place, people are trying to cover it up and hide it from God, or maybe even like try to explain God out of the picture as though he doesn't exist, because that's less scary than the thought of standing before God and, and being judged by him. But you know, and I know, the kind of father that we have. He sees us, he loves us, he forgives us, and he is here to refresh us. May God help us to always have that correct view of his love for us. And may God help us to share that view of his love with so many people who don't realize it. May God grant that to us for Jesus' sake. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus your Savior.